Lord, we do praise, lift up, and magnify your name. You're a great and an awesome God. We love you so much. And Lord, I just pray that you'd be glorified in the teaching of your word. Lord, and not be the words of men. Lord, your Holy Spirit would minister to our hearts. Lord, I thank you for every person who's here. Lord, we know that you brought us here for such a time as this. Lord, may you just reach down and, and just open our eyes and soften us to, Lord, receive exactly what you have for us. Lord, I lift up the children's ministries to you tonight as well. Be with each of the teachers as they're ministering to our children. Lord, be with Kevin as he's ministering to the youth. So, Father, we love you. We praise you. We lift up and magnify your name. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Great to have you here. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. Continue our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. This morning, or this morning, this evening, we're going to look at the first 15 verses because the last verses, uh, while the Word of God and every line in it and every letter in it is inspired by God, where they break the chapters isn't necessarily. It's really just an addressing system in the Bible that came about with the printing press so we can find things in the Word. So we're actually going to stop at verse 15 because at verse 16, it really starts a thought that will be picked up in the next chapter. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 15 tonight of 1 Samuel 13. Now to catch us up, we're transitioning from the time of Samuel to the time of Saul. Samuel, a prophet, called by God, anointed by God, given to God by his mother Hannah from even before the time that he was born. And we know that God had a mighty plan for his life and God has used him in a mighty way. Well, we also know this is a time when everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And the priesthood had grown corrupt and sadly even Samuel... His own sons were not walking with God. So the children of Israel then began to cry out for a king. If you'll remember what happened, they cried out for a king, and what they wanted was a physical presence, someone they could look at and get behind, someone they could reach out and actually touch. Now we know they already had a king, and their king was God. And he said, you're rejecting, they're not rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me as their king when they cry out for a king. And so God gave them exactly what they wanted. And sometimes the worst thing that can happen to us is God to give us exactly what we're asking for. We just keep asking and begging and we plead with God and then finally he says, okay, have it. And when it's in direct contrast to the word of God, well, if you'll remember, he even told them, if you have a king, here's what's going to happen. You're going to cry out for a king and he's going to enslave you and he's going to be, you know, he's going to be a terror unto the people. He's going to take your children. He's going to take your lands. He's going to take everything from you. When you're done, you'll be crying out to remove him as king. And they said, give us a king anyway. So much like us, when God tells us and warns us in his word that something is sin and will bring us harm and we say, I don't, I want it anyway. And sadly, that's what happened. Now, I want to say this. God gave Saul every chance to succeed. Because we know that he picked not only the man that was outwardly everything they could have wanted. We know that he was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. He was the best looking person on the planet at the time, men and women included. He was started off humble. If you remember when he went to be introduced as king, he was hiding in the equipment. It says that Samuel was there to minister to him, that God raised up valiant men all around him. He even poured out the Holy Spirit upon him. So he didn't just give them the fleshly king they were asking for. He gave them the man from the physical perspective that anyone would want and endowed him with everything he needed to be successful. Except that we know the heart of man is wicked and perverse above all things. And Saul is going to be proof of that. So he had a strong body, a humble mind, spiritual power, Samuel with him, valiant men around him. Then we get to chapter 11, we see that, again, the Holy Spirit is put upon him. That he starts off really well. He seeks godly counsel. And he goes out and fights the first battle. If you remember, the Ammonites were attacking Jabesh-Gilead. Jabesh-Gilead was being attacked because they were on the outskirts. Remember, they settled on the the eastern side of the Jordan River. They didn't come all the way into the land of promise. They settled with less than God's highest, something that many Christians do today, where we're happy with the get-out-of-hell-free card. We're happy with knowing God. We don't really want to have to press in and be too serious about this walk thing. And the Jordan being a picture of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, two and a half tribes settled outside. Jabesh Gilead was a part of that. But Jabesh Gilead also had other problems. And because of they didn't come and help Israel fight against the Benjamites when they were wicked. They were kind of left on their own and the Ammonites were coming to attack them. And right about that time, God 
touches Saul, and Saul raises up an army of 330,000 men in chapter 11, and they go out and they wipe out the Ammonites. And when he comes back, he starts off really well because he takes no credit for himself. He gives praise and glory to honor and honor to God at Gilgal. That's important to note. And they make sacrifices there. And the children of Israel must have thought, this is everything we could have wanted and more. Look at this guy. He's good looking. He's got the charisma. He's, he's a big guy we can get behind. We finally have someone that can stand up for us. And then we saw in chapter 12 the grace of God again, because what did he do? He told them, all right, you've disobeyed me, but if from this day forward you will walk in obedience to me, I will bless you and I will bless this king of yours. And not only that will he reign, but the children after him will reign. So look at the incredible grace of God. They cry out for something contrary to what God wanted. He gives it to them only because of their rebellion. And then he now says, if you will just start walking with me from this point forward, I will bless you. You know what I thought about? I thought about somebody insisting to be married to an unbeliever. And then being married, and then now what? You know what God would say to you? Obey me from this point forward and I will bless you. Now, if you're not married, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Amen? But at the same time, if you are already married to someone that's not saved, God's will is that you would remain married to them, and God would do a work in that marriage. And I just think there's so many other applications. That's just one that came to mind where we can look at our past. It's been a disaster. We've rebelled against God. Praise God for His grace. If you're still breathing in and out, God's not done with you. Amen? Now, we get to, the, to chapter 13. As we come to chapter 13, the last chapter ended with an exhortation to both Saul and the children of Israel. And it says this, Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Now sadly, tonight's text, even after he's been victorious, is going to start to reveal the true character of Saul. Though he looked good for a while, in the end, he will not be all that the Lord, he will be all that the Lord had prophesied through Samuel that he would be. Again, like it's been said many times before, sin is pleasurable for a season. Sometimes we enter into sinful behavior, it looks really good for a while. But in the end, the truth always comes out. And as we go through tonight's text, we're going to see several character traits that both reveal the true heart of Saul, but also serve as a warning sign for everyone in the room tonight. These are things we will start to see when we are not walking in the fear of the Lord. You know, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And and as he instructed them, if you will walk in the fear of God, I will bless you. If you will fear God, I will bless you. Well, the title of the message tonight is Signs That We Are No Longer Walking in the Fear of the Lord. And there are four things we're going to talk about tonight. Number one, pride. We get pride when we don't fear God. When we walk in reverence for God, we have nothing to be proud of. Amen? Compared to God, we're nothing. And we only get proud when we start to think less of God and more of ourselves. Number two, impatience. When we stop fearing God, we get impatient with God. I'll go into more detail, of course, but we start telling God He needs to hurry up. What are you doing, Lord? Be quick about it, right? And this is what we're going to see in tonight's text. Number three, we start to make excuses for our sin. We do not truly fear and reverence God. A warning sign is we start to make excuses for our sin rather than repent. And then lastly, just to sum it all up, we're going to see the consequences of sin and an unrepentant heart. So let's begin in verse 1, looking at signs that we are no longer walking in the fear of the Lord. The first one that we will see is pride. Look at verse 1. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel. Now, To this point, Saul had been everything that Israel could have ever wanted. His actions reflected the Spirit of God being upon him. And again, that the Spirit was leading and guiding him, that Samuel was there giving him direction. He had a strong, humble heart. He was a warrior. He he had, again, the Spirit of God leading him. He proceeded with boldness into battle to defeat the Ammonites. Had given God all the glory And in God's grace, he said, from now on you serve me, I'll do a great thing. And if you just obey, we'll bless you. Look how quickly it is before he starts to show his true colors. He's been king for two years. And at first he was really humble and really desperate for God. My prayer is that we would never be a Christian so long that we stop being desperate for God. 
We get to the point where, well, I've been saved a long time. Yeah, they get, yeah I know. I'm saved. Yeah, that's right. I, I know the Bible. I've read it. I talk to people like that. Yeah, I've read it. Oh, yeah, I know what the Bible says. Yeah, you know. Been through it. Why do you, you know, why you got to teach that chapter again? I've heard it before. This is not Moby Dick. Amen? This is the Bible. Amen. It's the living, breathing Word of God, and we need to read it again and again and again and again and again. Amen? And we go through, you know, we could teach the same chapter every week for a year, and we'd still get, continue to grow through it. Because the Word of God continues to minister to our hearts. But sadly, this is the case with Saul. It's been a couple years, and he starts to like this king thing. Yeah, I am, you know, that's right, I'm the king. People keep telling me I'm the king. They tell me how wonderful I am. They keep reminding me what I did to the Ammonites. I guess I am a pretty awesome guy after all. And we need to make sure we don't listen to what men say. Instead, we need to look at who we are in the light of the Word of God. God's Word will always humble us, won't it? Bring us right back down to earth. When you grade yourself compared to men, you can look pretty good. But when you grade yourself compared to our Savior, you will never look good enough. You will always be in desperate need for Him. So he's telling them, if you obey, and sadly, here comes King Saul. He could lead them into a time of blessing, or he could lead them into a time of judgment. He had everything available to him to, to, him to succeed, and yet, he's not going to be led by the Spirit, but start trusting in his flesh. Only two years have gone by. The victory's starting to go to his head. His true colors are about to come out. Look at verse 2. Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. Now, this, doesn't, this sounds pretty ambiguous. Unless you remember that in the chapter 11 when he went and fought the battle, how many people did he have? 330,000. Now he says, yeah, 3,000 will work. That's all I need. I got it. You know, I mean, hey, I'm the king after all. And if I just have a few guys with me, that should be sufficient. You know, we can start to get overconfident in our own abilities when we start to, again, listen to our press. When we start to get prideful. Well, I can handle that. I don't, you know, this one area of my life, I got that pretty well knocked. You know, Lord, I need help over here, but I can handle this. Take heed lest ye fall. Amen. Every one of us, there's no sin that we're above falling into if we are walking in our flesh. Amen? Amen? We need the Holy Spirit. We need His direction. We need His conviction. And sadly, some time has gone by and King Saul starts to think, well, yeah, I am taller than everybody. I'm better looking than everybody. I've already won some battles. Everybody's praising my name. I don't need 330,000 guys. I can use 3,000. That should be plenty. We're just going to find out in tonight's chapter, not so much. Now look what it says here. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash in the mountains of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. Now Saul is in Michmash. That word means hidden. And I find that interesting. You'll see that in the next chapter. But he's only four miles away from Gilgal, where Saul had been publicly identified as king, and God had given him a great victory. And then it says, so he has just 2,000 guys with him, and he sends a thousand down with Jonathan. Now Jonathan is his son. And Jonathan is a man of God. Where his Father is a man of the flesh, as we're going to see, Jonathan is a man of God. Where Saul wants to exalt himself, Jonathan wants to magnify the name of the Lord. Where Saul has only one desire, and that's that he be famous, and that people honor him, Jonathan, you will see, even after David comes along later, and Jonathan is the rightful king according to you know, the, pre, the line of the king. His father's the king. He's supposed to be next in line. But he recognizes God's hand on David. And he's the biggest promoter of David. Humility. He's a great, he's a wonderful example of godly character. What an example for us though, to, that we can't be blaming stuff on our parents. Because Saul is an ungodly dad, but Jonathan's a godly young man. And too often today, with all the psychobabble out there, well, your mom didn't breastfeed you long enough, that's why you're a train wreck. Well, your dad, it's because of your father. It's his fault. You know what, guys? Stop it already. Amen? Amen. We stand before Almighty God one day. Mom and dad's not standing next to you. You can't blame it on your PE teacher or anybody else. You've got to stand before God and stand right before Him. And Jonathan is an example of one who stood up right before God, even though his dad was a disaster. We're going to see that his dad next week wants to kill him for eating some honey while out fighting in a battle. That's his dad. And yet Jonathan is going to be a, a great example of godly character. Now notice where Jonathan is. 
It says he's in Gibeah of Benjamin. Just real quick, remember, that city does not have a good history. Gibeah is the city where the Levite was traveling back in Judges 19 and 20, and he, and he stopped on his way home, and he went into the city. If you'll remember, the men came out, and they wanted to know him carnally, right? To be direct, they wanted to have sex with this man, these other men. It says perverted men. And when that didn't happen, he threw his concubine out, and they raped her until she died. Gnarly stuff in the Bible, Judges 19 and 20. Now what happens then is that they come and, and he cuts his concubine in 12 pieces and sends her out to the 12 tribes, this bloody telegram letting them know something really gnarly has happened. They all gather together and they go out against Gibeah, but the Benjamites will not help them destroy these men within their own territory. So what happens is all of Israel comes against Benjamin instead, and all the Benjamins are wiped out except for 600 of them. And they have to find their children from their wives from Jabesh-Gilead, and it's from Jabesh-Gilead and the 600 remaining from Benjamin that Jonathan and Saul are descendants. So he's back in Gibeah, this city once wicked and perverse, but you know, that's just a great thing because it's, it's just... And please don't be offended because I grew up here, so when you grow up here, you can say what you want. Amen? Amen. This place is Gibeah. But God can redeem it. Amen? Amen. You know what? Everybody, you talk about Santa Cruz. I go to pastor's conferences. Where are you from? Oh, dude, praying for you, man. Whoa. (laughs) And I just say, you know what? What a better place to take a halogen light than the darkest place around. Amen? Amen? And this place, Santa Cruz, Holy Cross, needs Jesus Christ. And so I just keep praying that one of these days we'll be known as the Bible Belt of Northern California. God can do that, amen? Amen. He can absolutely do that. So let's keep praying. So this is a a wicked and perverse city. Jonathan is now back there. Some time has passed. And it says here in the rest of that verse, the rest of the people he sent away, every man to his own tent. In a way, he was acting like the battle was over. You know, I only need a few thousand guys around me. The battle's pretty much over anyway. Let me send all the guys home. But the truth is that God had a commandment about the land of promise. And they were to wipe out all the enemies out of the land of promise. And Saul sadly falls into this trap of thinking, well, we won the one battle. The battle's over. I just need a few guys. So I got this, I got a couple thousand with me, a thousand with my son. That should be sufficient. And again, we're going to find, as he sends 327,000 away, and I believe he's doing it mainly because of pride. Because of his pride, he no longer walks in fear of the Lord. He's trusting in himself. Sometimes as Christians, we can allow past victories to feed our flesh. We can become overconfident about our ability to overcome sin and temptation. And as I said before, take heed lest ye fall. When we cease to be desperate for God, we become an open target for the enemy. The Bible tells us without Him we can do what? Nothing. Nothing. And that word nothing means nothing. So you can do nothing apart from God. And so we need to be desperate for Him in every aspect of life. So He sent away His army. He's trusting more in Himself. Verse 3. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. Now, Jonathan's name means Jehovah has given. That's a great name. Jehovah has given. And Geba is a town that was in the tribe of Benjamin, in their territory, about one and a half miles from Gibeah. So Jonathan, young man, his dad has given him a thousand men. As we're going to see next week, there's only two guys in their entire army that have swords. Man. And the two guys that have them are Saul and Jonathan. I don't know what the rest of the guys are fighting with, but they don't have swords. And so Jonathan looks out, only a mile and a half away, comes across this garrison. Now the word for garrison there is different than the word we're going to see for garrison at the end of the chapter. That word means a group of men. This word garrison means a military outpost. You know, something that was set into the ground, there was a standard. It could have even been like a really big pillar, just to point to the fact that we've come this far, and this territory now belongs to us. And so Jonathan sees this military outpost, or this pillar there, and more than likely a military outpost filled with Philistine soldiers, or at least some that were there. And he sees it, and what they're saying is, this land that belongs to God belongs to us now. And Jonathan says... I don't think so. Because God promised to give the land to us. It belongs to the children of Israel. And you know what? Because of that, we're going to take it back. 
And so he goes and he attacks them. It says, And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. Now, he attacks it. He brings victory there. He wipes out the people that are there, the soldiers that are there, or at the very least, he takes whatever they've set up to be a standard, showing it belonged to them, and he knocks it down. Now, it's interesting. His name means the Lord was given. I believe he's a reflection of his name. Because he was not only a man God had given to Israel, but he was also a man who was willing to lay down his life to regain the land that God had given them. God has given us this land. I'm going to go fight for it. His name means Jehovah has given. Jehovah has given not only him as a son, but Jehovah had given the land to them. And he attacked and defeated it. Now in doing this, this was a declaration of war against the Philistines. If you show up and start killing their guys and and wiping out one of their outposts, they're not going to respond to that too well. And it says here, and the Philistines heard of it. So it's not something they were ready, going to ignore, and it made them start getting ready for war. Look at the next verse, the rest of the verse. It says, Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now, when they blew a trumpet, it was a way for them to communicate. It would draw all the people together, and most often when they blew a trumpet, it was either spread some news, but most often it was to declare war, to ready them for battle. It says in Numbers 10.9, When you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, then you shall sound the alarm with the trumpets, and you will be remembered before the Lord your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. So Saul makes the right action, but as we're going to see, he has the wrong attitude. He does blow the trumpet, but when in blowing the trumpet, his attitude is wrong. You know, we can do all the religious rituals under the sun, but if our attitude is wrong, it's meaningless. You can take communion a thousand times. You can be baptized five thousand times. You can raise your hand and pray the sinner's prayer ten thousand times. And you won't be saved unless you've truly given your heart to Jesus Christ. The ritual will not save you. It's relationship. And he blows the trumpets. And again, from the outward appearance, it looks like Saul's rallying the troops. He's doing the right thing. They're about to go into battle against the Philistines. Then he says, let the Hebrews hear... Now all Israel heard it and said that Saul attacked a garrison of the Philistines. Now, wait a minute. Who attacked? Who did it? Jonathan. Who takes the credit? Saul. Pride. He wouldn't even let his own son get any credit. This is a son. Now remember, when he won the previous battle, he was humble. He took no glory. He pointed them all to the Lord. And now two short years later, there's a a skirmish in a garrison. Jonathan goes up, shows great boldness and bravery, wins a battle, comes back, and Saul takes the credit. This is a sign, again, of pride. Not only does he take the credit, but he announces it to all of Israel. You know, he should have been seeking the Lord's direction instead of trying to get the praise and approval of men. You know, you know you're going to battle against the Philistines? I'm thinking prayer meeting is probably a good thing to have. Not blow a trumpet, gather everybody together, and then tell them the great victory you've just won. I just wanted to bring you all together so I could announce to you how great I am. Can you imagine? How arrogant must you be? Get over yourself already, right? So, once blessed and humble just to be used by God, now wanting to take credit, receive praise for something he hadn't done. Once humbled, now filled with pride. Can I just take a side note and say this? One of the things that, where I would see this most often would be in Christian music. You know, we used to have bands come and play for our youth group in San Jose. We had a pretty large youth group, hundreds of kids, growing, thriving, God-blessing. And we'd bring guys up and do these things. We'd reach out to 2,500 kids, and we'd promote it for months all over San Jose. And first, the bands would come up and just be stoked to be serving God. Give them gas money, a place to stay, and a little money, you know, and, and they'd be very happy. But after a few years and getting, their, getting played on the radio and, and uh, you know, people buying their CDs, all of a sudden I'd get contracts 25 pages long telling me that they need to be flown first class, stay in a five-star hotel, need to be fed these items on their buffet, and they would need 10 grand to play for an hour. Pride. People start to listen. You know what? That's why we should never let anybody call out our name for anything. 
They just point them up every time. Amen? Amen. They say, oh man, that was great. Yeah, praise God. Amen? Because he alone is great. Touch not the glory. He alone is glorified. This is what we see happening with Saul. They've been praising his name long enough. He's starting to believe it. Let's all get together and talk about how great I am. It's tragic. Now look what it says. Now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines and that Israel also had become an abomination to the Philistines. An abomination. The word there, it's actually kind of interesting. It can mean offensive, loathsome, or hated, but it really, what it really means is to smell bad. As far as the Philistines were concerned, Israel stunk. Why? Because they had come out and said, this land that God has given us, we're taking it back. Now, you know what's interesting? The world doesn't mind us as long as we are subservient and quiet and saying nothing about our God and not proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And as long as we're seen and not heard, that's just fine. You step up and start standing up for God, all of a sudden we're an abomination to the world. This is exactly what's happening here. You know, they had the children of Israel in bondage. They had them, you know, subservient to them. And as long as they just kept in their place and they could pick on them whenever they wanted to, and they were never going to try to reach out and take what really belonged to them, it was fine. But as soon as they stepped up and did something, they became an abomination. Guys, I pray, and please don't take this wrong, but I pray that we'd be an abomination. I pray that we would not be so undercover that, you know, and Christianity's under attack and we need to do it in love. We don't need to be militant about it. We just need to be Christ-like about it. And we need to be bold, but bold in love. Amen? Speak with great boldness. It's okay. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all evil manners of evil against you for my name's sake, for so they did the prophets who went before you. And you know what? We have foes today. And the, our greatest foe is not the world, though the world can be a foe. The Bible says we're enemies of this world. Our, our biggest foe is, the, is Satan. The Bible says we battle not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities and evil forces of darkness in high places. But I find this interesting. Those who are having the least amount of impact for the kingdom of God, I believe Satan really could just care less and leave you alone. And I've said this before. Satan is not omnipresent and he's not all-knowing. He's not the opposite of God. He's not close to God. In any way, shape, or form. Not even close. Now, because he's not omniscient and doesn't know everything, that means his knowledge is limited. So I truly believe he doesn't know the name of every man, woman, and child on this planet. I don't believe he does. I don't think he's intelligent enough. He's intelligent, of course. God created him. But he's not intelligent enough, I believe, to know the name of every man, woman, and child on this planet. So that means he only knows the names of some. So who does he know the names of? I believe it's those who are most on fire for God. So have you ever thought, I've said this to you before, but I'll say it again. Have you ever thought about living so on fire for God that Satan knows your name? Some of you say, I'd like to live so on fire for God that Satan almost knows my name. I'd like him to know the name of the people just a little more spiritual than me, but not right before, you know, just drop off right there. But you know what? I would pray that we would want to be on so on fire for God that we'd be the number one person on his hit list. Because nothing can happen to us unless God allows it. And greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and joy and power and a sound mind. And we don't need to sweat it. Amen? Amen. Now, we're not supposed to be addressing Satan. Did you know that? We don't talk to Satan. God's taking care of him. We talk to God. God takes care of him. Amen? You hear people doing that? That's not theologically sound. Well, Satan, we... No, we don't... Let God do that. You talk to God. God will take care of Satan. Amen? God will take care of him. So we know that the enemy and the world want to keep us silent. And my prayer would be that we would proclaim the truth with great boldness. If peace with the devil is more important to you than victory in the Lord, you're going to live a life that's defeated and has no impact on eternity. If you just want to be left alone, Satan will gladly do that if you just don't do anything for the kingdom of God. But we don't want that. We want to stand up for him. We're in a spiritual battle, and it's time for us to be unashamed of the one that we follow. And again, I pray that the enemy would be shaken when he hears the name Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz. I really do. That he would just go, oh man, that'd be good. Praise God. Now it says there that all Israel had become an abomination to the Philistines, and the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Remember, Gilgal is significant. 
Because that is where Saul had been initially publicly proclaimed king. had been anointed privately and now publicly proclaimed as king at Gilgal. And it's also the place where after the victory had been won, he went back and made a monument unto the Lord and they made sacrifice and he gave God all the glory. Now he's back in that same spot. But this time, sadly, he's not going to act the same way he did the first time. So, signs that you are no longer walking in the fear of the Lord. Number one, pride. Once humble Saul, now proud, insecure, doesn't want to even share his fame with his own son, seeking the praise of man, trusting in his own strength. And point number two, signs that you are no longer walking in the fear of God. Impatience. Look what it says there in verse 5. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. Now, the Philistines gathered a huge army to crush these rebellious Israelites who would dare go and attack one of their you know, military outposts. We're going to show these guys who's really boss. Now, look how big this army is. It's pretty awesome when you think about it. 30,000 chariots. 30,000 chariots. Now, in those days, a chariot would be like the equivalent of a tank in World War II. I mean, these things were just awesome, when you, especially when you consider the guys they're fighting against, as we're going to find out next week, had two swords. Two swords. As far as we know, no horses, no shields. They got some two swords, and they got some farm implements. That's it. Philistines, 30,000 chariots. Now, again, it's like a tank moving along, horses drawing it, and guys who are, you know, got swords and stuff where they can fight from a chariot. Can you imagine trying to fight a guy riding through on a chariot? I don't know how fast they go, but, you know, 30, 40 miles an hour, whatever they go, and they're just coming through, and wait, how do you fight that guy? And you're just over there with your plow share, you know, <laughs> fighting him. It's kind of overwhelming. Now, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. So you got the 30,000 guys with chariots with horses. you got 6,000 guys riding on horses, gifted enough to ride on a horse and fight a battle from the top of a horse. Now, how many guys does he have hanging out with him? 2,000. Uh, battle wasn't over. Hello? You had 330,000 guys. You sent them all home because of pride. How's that working out for you right about now? you got a couple thousand guys hanging out with you. And look at the, the enemy. Massive. Then it says, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in a multitude. How many is that? I don't know, but it's a lot. There's no way to know the number, but it's got to be hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not even millions. It says as how much sand is on the seashore. So can you imagine? Here you are in Gilgal, and you're looking across, and here comes this army mounting up. Now Saul was taking credit for going out and fighting and defeating the outpost, but I, all of a sudden, he's not going to be so brave. He took credit for a battle he didn't fight, and now he is the king, and he is the guy that should be fighting the next battle. But sadly, we're going to see his true character. This infantry was huge. Now it says there, and they came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. Now, Michmash is just three to four miles away from Gilgal. I have an idea, I don't know, I can't prove this, but I have an idea that up on Gilgal, they could see the army mounting up. I'm thoroughly convinced of it. So they're up on, the, on Gilgal, they're looking out, and here's this army, and it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Chariots. Can you imagine the sun glistening off the chariots, the shields, men as far as your eye can see. Guys on horses, they're mounting up and they're headed in your direction. And they're just a few miles away. And by the way, Saul, you're in charge. Oh, not so much. You know, again, we get real prideful and we can get really arrogant, but then we find out and we try to do things in our own strength that we're going to be defeated. Look at verse 6. When, in, when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, this is why I believe they could see. It didn't say they heard they were in danger. Nobody came back and reported to them. They saw they were in danger. That means they must have been able to look out and see them. And when they saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. Now, 
This army was large enough to be seen far away. The word danger there means in a strait, it says in the, KJ, in the King James Version. The word in Hebrew means to cramp, to be afflicted, to be in distress. Today we might say between a rock and a hard place. They were between a rock and a hard place. They had nowhere to turn, nowhere to go, no help, no hope. Done. You know what though? Don't we see God's people in that situation a lot? And doesn't God just come through? How about the Red Sea? You're backed up against the Red Sea. You got Egypt coming. How many chariots do they have? I don't know, but there were a lot of them. And here come the chariots, and here comes this, the greatest army on the planet at the time, the Egyptians, and they're backed up against the Red Sea. And what do they got? A guy with a stick. Right? And they start murmuring. And what does he do? He prays, opens up his hands, water opens up, they pass right through, and all Pharaoh's people did the dead man float, right? If you, if you grew up in the church, you know that song, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, right? And all Pharaoh's people did the dead man float. The water closed up on him. What about Gideon and his army? God kept making his army smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Why? So God would have to know that God, so Gideon would have to know that God did it. When his army was big enough, he might have said, we're really studly guys. 32,000 of us wiped out 150. You know, hey, that was pretty good. Outnumbered five to one. God got him down to being outnumbered 400 to one. Oh, going to have to be God now. And it was. Well, guess what? Here's a chance for God to do a great work. But for God to do a great work, we've got to be turning to God to do the great work. But sadly, we're going to see that Saul's heart is in the wrong place. The people were distressed. Why? Because they were looking at the size of the enemy instead of looking at the greatness of their God. Guys, our, our enemy is only great if our God is small. Is our God greater than cancer? What's the answer? Is our God greater than, than every struggle, trial, difficulty of life? He's greater than the financial troubles of life. He's greater than the trials we're going through with our children. He's greater than any difficulty in your marriage. He's greater than all of it. And you know what? It only becomes a great trial when we have a small God. Amen. He's a great God. Amen. I mean, let's face it, and we're going to see it next chapter, but he could wipe these guys out with a word. He could say, toast. They're all to-. He could just do that. He's God. But sadly, they start looking at things from a physical perspective, and that's when you and I get overwhelmed too. Now, they run and they hide in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and in pits. This has got to be the low point in the history of Israel up to this point. They're hiding in rocks. They're hiding in holes in the ground. They're petrified. These are the same people that cried out for a king. Now they got a king. How's that working out for you? There's your king. How's it working out for you? Oh, not so much. When God was your king, how'd it work out? Well, that was a lot better when God was king. Exactly. Guy's laying in a pit. Oh, got a king now, though. Got a king. Well, that's well, great. Good for you. Got a king. Problem's worse than ever. Now, just remember this. Your faith is limited by the, the size and ability of the king that you put your faith in. So if you're putting your faith in a man, your faith's going to be limited to what that man can do. But if you put your faith in the king of kings, there is no limit to what your God can do. Amen? To the one that you can put your faith in. He's greater than all of it. We have nothing to fear. So our faith is in proportion to the understanding of the greatness of our God. Our faith should increase because as we study the word of God, the understanding of how great God is should increase. No matter how great you think he is, he's way greater than that. Isn't that true? You're not going to get to heaven and go, oh, is this it? That's, that's, that's what's not going to happen. You're going to get to heaven and go, good, if I had any idea, I would have been more bold. Amen? Amen. Man, I had no idea, you know, and that's what's going to happen. And sadly, when we make God less, then our faith is less. Saul, once victorious in humility, is now being brought low by his pride. The Bible said pride go before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. God teaching Israel a great lesson, how foolish it is to put their confidence in men. Fear, anxiety, and worry are all the opposite of faith. True faith is measured not when everything's good, but when things are difficult. That's how you know someone really has faith. It says this in Psalm 3.6. David said this, and I believe him because he proves it in a few chapters. David said in Psalm 3.6 when his own son Absalom was seeking to kill him. He said, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people. You know why? Because he knew how great God was. You don't need to be afraid. When we have the peace of God, we will not fear. 
If God is for me, who can be against me? Look at verse 7. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. You know where they went? Out of the land of promise. You know, things are really tough walking with God. I think I'm going to go back to my old way of life. When people tell me that, I'm, you know what I'm saying? You don't know God. You couldn't possibly. Because I want to tell you right now, the worst day ever being a Christian is better than the best day being an unbeliever. Amen. You walk in and knowing the true and living God, it doesn't get any better than that. Right. And when people say to me, oh, well, yeah, you know, it's just so much easier to be an unbeliever. You don't know the true and living God then. Because He gives you peace that surpasses all understanding. Amen. Peace when you don't get it. But God gets it, so I trust Him. I don't understand why I'm going through what I'm going through, but God is faithful. They're faced with a physical enemy, and they fled from the land of promise. They left God's highest, and they went out of fear back to the old place where they used to be. And that same danger exists today, as many resisting or walking away from God's calling out of fear of worldly consequences. You know what? I'd like to do that for God, but it'd just be too tough. I have to give up too much. I have to give up too much wood, hay, and stubble, and chaff. Right? Because ultimately... A man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So it says here, as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal. Well, that's good. Place had been officially recognized as king by Samuel and the people. Also the place he'd been instructed. Back in 1 Samuel 10, he says, now Saul, you need to wait for me at Gilgal until I come and make sacrifice. Don't go anywhere until I come and make sacrifice. Now, two years has passed. It hasn't happened yet. And he's supposed to go there and wait. And you know what? He's waiting. That's good. At least he's not in a hole, right? But he will be next chapter, in a sense. He's going to be hiding under a tree while the sun's out fighting. But we see this character of this man that at least he's waiting. But we're going to see that his true character is about to come out. Rest of verse 7. Verse 8. Then he waited seven days. Now, I want to, I want to say this, too. Go back to verse uh, 7, the last half. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, but all the people followed him trembling. The word trembling means shuddering or quaking. So I looked it up. It literally means they were following him like this. So the guys who weren't in the holes, walking behind him like that. Nice army. How's that working out for you, Saul? Dude. So now that you're in charge, we got a king who's afraid and has no character, who's filled up with himself, and an army full of guys who are shaking. This is our defense. This is what happens when we don't put our faith in the Lord. Not a whole lot of confidence in their king that they cried out for. If they had confidence, they wouldn't be shaking in their boots. Now look at verse 8. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. Now again, 1 Samuel 10.8, When Samuel anointed him king, he said, And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you, to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you shall do. So you're supposed to wait. So it says he's waited seven days. But look what it says next in verse 8. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. Now this means he didn't come as quick as he wanted him to come. He's supposed to have been here. He said seven days. It's been seven days. I don't see him. Now, we can put timelines on God. You know, Lord, I've been praying about this a long time. Now, let me just make this really simple for you. The Bible says to God, a day is to a thousand years, is a thousand years to a day. So if you've been praying for a thousand years, it's been a day. Keep praying. Amen? You know, too often, I've just been praying forever. I know you haven't. God's been around forever. Our life is but a vapor. You haven't been praying very long at all. Keep praying. But what we see here is that It doesn't happen as quick as he wants, so look what happens. And notice, he's going to be caught up by his circumstances. And the people were scattered from him. So the longer he waited for Samuel to come, the more imminent his enemy was attacking, the more they were mounting up, and the more and more his own trembling army was running away. He's already saying, i got a few trembling guys. they got people as far as the eye can see in 30,000 chariots, and they're mounting up more and more by the day. Their attack upon us is imminent. Samuel's supposed to come make the sacrifice so we can go fight the battle. He hasn't shown up yet, and my guys keep leaving. So i got to do something myself. And that's exactly what he's going to do. Things were, get, were bad and only getting worse with each passing moment, and Samuel, or Saul, excuse me, is going to be impatient. He's going to refuse to wait any longer, 
And he's going to get things done his own way. Like so many today, unwilling to wait upon the Lord. You know what? There's far worse things than having to wait for God's highest. Amen? How about getting something that's not God's highest right now? And getting it for the rest of your life. There you go. That's what you wanted. Okay. Now watch what happens. I find this interesting. Look at verse 9. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered a burnt offering. Now, amazing how things have changed in two years. On Gilgal, two years earlier, what was he doing? He was making sacrifice unto the Lord. Samuel was doing it. And they were praising up and lifting in the name of the Lord and giving him all the glory. Two years later, he's performing an act of blasphemy as he takes the position of the high priest, of the priest. He is not allowed to make sacrifice. He's not a priest. He's not a prophet. In a sense, he's the king. He's not called to do that. So Saul is impatient, unwilling to take to wait upon God. He takes the place of the high priest. And it says in 2 Chronicles 26, the king Uzziah tried to do the work of the priest. You know what God did to him? Gave him leprosy. He doesn't think much of that. Because you've got to remember the priest is a type or a picture of Jesus, right? Amen. And so when, the king, when someone else steps in, they're defiling that picture. And so he's telling them, you need to step off. And so Saul disobeyed God's word. He offered sacrifice. He didn't wait for Samuel. And his sin of impatience is going to come with some heavy-duty consequences. So point number one, these signs that we're no longer walking in fear of the Lord. Number one is pride. Number two is impatience. Now look at number three. He's going to make excuses for his sin. And this is something we do when we get to a place we don't really fear God anymore. Look at verse 10. Now what happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came. Isn't that the way it always works? We think we've been waiting a long time. God says, I'm going to come right on time. So you pray and pray and pray, and it doesn't happen the way you want it. So you go out and make it happen, and as soon as you do, God's answer shows up. Whoops. Should have waited. Can you imagine? He's doing the burnt offering, and I looks up, and here comes Samuel. Oh, I should have you know, waited. And you know what? This is going to be heavy-duty consequences. Sometimes we don't wait. Something, oh, it's not that big a deal. No, it's a huge deal. Because you know what we've really done? We've taken God off the throne and put ourselves there. All right, God, you know what? You're just taking too long. You're off. I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to do it my way. I'm just going to give you a hand, Lord, because you could really use my help. He doesn't need your help. We need His. So Saul grows impatient. He decides to wait no longer. He took things into his own hands, and no sooner does he engage in this blasphemous act than up walks Samuel. Waiting one month, one week, one hour, one day, or one minute less than God has called you to can be absolutely disastrous. Look at the rest of verse 10. And it says there, And Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. No doubt thinking of excuses every step of the way. You know, isn't it amazing how you just get totally busted, caught? Somebody pulls up and you're, you're just, I'm done. I shouldn't have done it. And so he's walking out to greet him going, Oh, i got to come up with something i got to have an answer. I'm going to be in big trouble if I don't. Now, watch what happens. Look at Samuel. And Samuel said, what have you done? Now, Samuel is a prophet, so God could have told him. But also, I have an idea. He can smell the sacrifice. Right? You're, building, you're burning like a whole you know, animal. Sweet-smelling aroma, Right? I'm glad the God loves barbecue. That's good stuff, man. So, you know, you're, you're in your neighborhood and the guy eight doors down has a little hibachi and you're like, what's he, ooh, that sounds, you know, gonna make a new friend, you know. But here's the thing. In this case, we got a whole animal being sacrificed to the Lord. Saul, Samuel walks up and, oh, Saul, what have you done? Now, here's an opportunity to repent. But Samuel, as he confronts Saul with his sins of impatience and disobedience, when confronted with sin, you can do one of three things. You can make excuses, accuse others, or repent. You can make excuses, accuse others, or repent. Saul does everything but repent. Now watch what he does. First thing he does is he accuses Samuel. Now look what he says. 
Saul said, when I saw the people were scattered from me, and that you did not come with the days appointed. It's your fault, Samuel. You didn't come. I was waiting. You didn't come. I had my, you, you didn't come. I had the sundial out. I was looking at it. You didn't show up. You were late. I did it because you were late. That's why. That's why it happened. Nobody else has ever done that, right? When you sin, blame it on someone else. Every kid on the planet learns that at a young age. I don't know. There must be a school for that. No, he did it. I didn't do it. He did it, right? Every kid does that. I only did it because you aren't here on time. It's your fault. You didn't come quick enough. Not only did he accuse others, but he makes excuses. Look at us. Going back to the first part. He says, when I saw that the people were scattered from me, and then he says, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. He says, you know what? When I saw that my people were leaving and the enemy was getting bigger, I knew I had to move. My time was running short. I had to do something. So he accused someone, and now he's making excuses. I've got to do it now before the enemy gets any bigger, my army gets any smaller. Notice again that excuses come when we limit God. When we limit God, we start making excuses. Verse 12, Then I said, The Philistines will now go down, come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. He makes himself sound really spiritual, doesn't he? Well, the only reason I did it was because I knew they might attack, and I didn't want them attacking without us having made sacrifice, because God needs to be in the proper place. So that's why I did it. That's really why I did it. 1 Samuel 15, 22, we're going to see it in a couple weeks. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. He wants obedience more than he wants sacrifice. The highest form of worship is obedience. You know, you can sing all the praise songs in the world you want, but if you're living like the world, it's not really worship. It's worship when you're saying, yes, Lord, I obey you, I trust you, I believe you, and I'm going to follow after you. That blesses him, and it's worshiped him more than anything else that we can do. It says there, I felt compelled. It's a, you know what it means in the original language? I had to do it. It just seemed like the right thing to do. This is why we must never be ruled by our feelings. Amen? But I felt like I was supposed to. I, I just had a feeling. Your feelings will lie. Amen? You know, here's another thing I hear a lot. I just, I don't have that same feeling anymore. I've fallen out of love. I'll get over that. Here's the point. Love is a choice, not a feeling. Amen? With the choice to obey God and to love your spouse, the feelings are going to follow. Amen? But it's when we say, well, I just don't feel the butterflies I used to. I used to see them across the room and my knees would go weak and they don't anymore. Well, you know what? That's just not going to happen for the rest of your life. Amen? (laughs) So here's the point. Choose to love her. Choose to love him. Amen? Because your feelings will lie. Don't follow your feelings, follow the word of God. And offer a burnt offering. So he made excuses, he accused others, he refused to repent. Last point, the consequences of sin and an unrepentant heart. Look at verse 13 to 15. It says, and Samuel said to him, you have done foolishly. Now notice, this word foolish in the Bible, the Bible tells us not to call anyone a fool. Did you know that? In God's word, it's a heavy duty word. And the word foolish in the word of God doesn't mean silly, but one who is morally and spiritually bankrupt. Whoa. So he says to him, Saul, you're lacking spiritually. Saul, what have you done? You have done foolishly. And then the bottom line is, look what he says, you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you for now the Lord would have established your kingdom forever. Remember what he told him before. If you obey the commandment of the Lord, then I will bless you as a nation, right? I will bless you. I will bless your people and your line will go on forever. Your son and your son's sons and your great-grandsons will all be king. But if you do wickedly, I will take the kingdom from you. Guess what? Judgment came. You have not obeyed the commandment of the Lord. Despite all the excuses... Despite all you know, the accusations, the bottom line is he disobeyed God. And because he did, sin has consequences, and Saul wasn't willing to repent. It reveals a heart still filled with pride, and his consequences are going to be heavy. Look what it says. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Not only was he going to lose the kingdom, but the kingdom would not pass to his son or his grandsons. He's telling him, 
the line of kings with you is going to stop right here. Why? Because you did not. Now, you might seem, well, he just made the sacrifice a few minutes early. What's the big deal? No, what he did was he put himself on the throne. What he did was, I'm not waiting for God. I'm going to do it my own way. Guys, no sin is a little sin to God. Amen? Amen? Now, he can forgive the greatest sin. And all is, you know, sin is sin to God. It all separates us from him. But we need to know that we should not take sin lightly because God doesn't. His son suffered and died to pay for it. We should not take it lightly. Your kingdom will not continue. Then let's finish up. It says there, the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. Who's that? David. It says in 2 Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him or loyal to him. God's not looking for ability, but availability. He's just looking for someone who says, I'm right here, Lord, use me. He'll say, I'll answer that prayer every time. And David was a man after his own heart. But wait, you might say, well, wait a minute. But David sinned too. Why is David a man after God's own heart? And later he's going to say he regretted ever making Saul king over Israel. You know, David was a murderer and an adulterer, wasn't he? How is he a man after God's own heart? And Saul, he regretted making king when David, some of David's sins were seemed to be just as bad as Saul's. Let me tell you the difference. When confronted with sin, Saul made excuses and accusations. When confronted with sin, David repented. That's the difference. When Nathan came and said, you're the man, he said, that's true. Yes, I am. He felt broken before the Lord, right? Lord, bring the, whatever it is, I did it. Guys, a man or a woman after God's own heart is one who when we sin and the Holy Spirit convicts us, we don't make excuses, we don't accuse others, we fall broken before Him. That's a man or a woman after God's own heart. Saul's lack of repentance is going to cost him his kingdom, his anointing, and most of those who followed him. Look at that last verse, last verse and a half. And the Lord commanded him to be commander over his people, and because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. So the commander of the people is not going to be you, but the one that God has chosen. We know in a few chapters we're going to see it's David. Verse 15. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him about how many? 600. You know what? Pride and impatience and unrepentant sin has shrunk his army from 330,000 down to 600. This is what, and you know, 600 guys who are shaking. The huge Philistine army is about to crush him. And next week we're going to see more of his heart, as only he and his son Jonathan have swords, and they're going to respond in completely different ways. Completely different ways when the battle comes. So, signs that we are no longer walking in the fear of the Lord. The first one is pride. What is pride? Trusting in our own strength, resources, and abilities and being more consumed with the praise of men than being faithful to God. Number two, impatience. Out of a lack of faith, refusing to wait upon God any longer, taking things into our own hands. Number three, making excuses for our sins. Making excuses, accusing others when we should be repenting. And then lastly, consequences of sin and an unrepentant heart. If we don't know God, it's eternal separation. And if we do, a lack of repentance will result in a fruitless walk. Our walk will have no impact on eternity. Guys, don't you want to live a life that's going to impact eternity? When this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. Nothing else is going to matter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We worship you, Lord. We thank you for your incredible grace that you've shown toward each of us. Lord, we want to live lives walking in the center of your will. Lord, we want to live lives in fear of you, fear, awe, and reverence for who you are. Lord, I pray you would help us, Lord, to never be prideful, but Lord, to be broken and humble. Lord, not to look at ourselves in comparison with the world, but Lord, reflect on who we are in comparison to your Son. Lord, I pray we would never be impatient with you. Help us to wait upon you. Lord, to trust that it'll be your perfect will and your perfect time. Lord, you know way better than we do. And we just trust you. Help us, Lord. Father, I pray also, Lord, that we would not make excuses. Lord, even tonight, maybe 
we've been convicted about some sin in our life. Lord, may we go to one of the pastors afterward and just share our heart, or even with one another. Lord, and we thank you that you're faithful and just to forgive us when we come broken and, and confessing our sin before you. Lord, we want to live lives that are fruitful. We want to live lives that impact eternity. Help us, Lord. We pray for Santa Cruz. Bring revival here, Lord. Start in our hearts first. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.